The Buddha's first discourse after his enlightenment is called turning the wheel of the Dharma or setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion. We spoke about this some weeks ago. In this first discourse, the wheel of the Dharma that he set in motion was the teaching and the understanding of the five spiritual faculties. And these are the five faculties which the Buddha said ripen into liberation. They are the faculties of faith, of concentration, of mindfulness, of effort, of wisdom. They ripen into liberation. Vipassana practice is that meditative discipline where these five faculties are transformed into what are called spiritual powers. And that means that these very same faculties of faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom become so strong in the mind, so powerful, that they're not easily overcome by the hindrances or by the kalesas. They become established in us. And so through the course of our practice, we transform them from faculties into powers of mind. One thing that's very obvious, although we sometimes overlook it, is that as our mind is, so is our life. Our life is the manifestation of the quality of our mind. So as these faculties, as these spiritual faculties become stronger, become powers, we actually find that our life comes to a place of greater ease, of greater equanimity, of greater balance. We're now in the long middle part of the retreat. You actually have built more of a base of mindfulness and acceptance and stillness and concentration and sensitivity and openness than you realize. And it's very clear and obvious in the interviews. There's a lot going on for you in your practice. Tonight I would like to speak about some ways of strengthening, of deepening these five spiritual, five spiritual faculties, ways of considering them, ways of practice, so that they actually become powers in our mind. But there's a caution before I begin. And that is, often people hear suggestions about practice, they're heard as self-judgments. And I would do that very often in my practice with Upandita. I would go in for an interview, and he would offer some suggestion for me in my practice. You know, strengthen this, do this. And very often I would turn it into a self-judgment I'm not good enough. I'm failing in practice. So I say this up front to forestall that tendency. If that tape arises in the mind, just wag your finger at Mara. It's only the voice of Mara. The suggestions for strengthening, for strengthening practice are only nutriments for the Dharma. They're about making our practice richer and deeper and stronger. You can either practice with those aspects I'll mention that you resonate with, or you can consciously strengthen those areas which you think need development. What's the first way of strengthening the spiritual faculties? First way of deepening them? 
We do it by creating a very strong foundation of right understanding. How we understand things, our view of things, has a tremendous influence, is a tremendous conditioning force for how we act. How we relate to different moments of experience. I'll just give a couple of examples to show you the power that our understanding has in the way we live our lives. For example, if there's no understanding of the law of karma, if we haven't reflected on it, if we don't understand it at all, then it's very likely that we won't pay very much attention to the motives behind our actions because we don't see or understand the importance of motivation in determining consequence. If we do understand the law of karma, if we have reflected on it, that becomes a conditioning force for looking deeply at our motivations. If there's a strong sense of self, if that's our belief system, then it's very easy to become strongly identified with all the thoughts and emotions and feelings because our understanding reinforces that identification. If we have some understanding of selflessness, it helps condition the disidentification. These are just a couple of examples to illustrate how our understanding of things very strongly conditions how we act in the world, how we relate to experience. There are three basic kinds of right understanding. I'm going to just go through the first two very briefly. The first right understanding, the first aspect, is the understanding of the law of karma, which we've talked about before, that actions have consequences, that they bring results. The second aspect of right understanding is the right view of jhana, of concentration practice. And it comes from seeing the limitation of sense pleasures. At a certain point in our practice, we begin to understand the very limited happiness that sense pleasures bring us. And we open to the possibility of a whole new realm of experience, which is the happiness or the pleasure of a concentrated mind. And through the path of jhana practice, of absorption, we can actually develop strong states of stillness, strong states of concentration. They're both very pleasurable and happy in themselves. The hindrances, the kalesas, don't have an opportunity to arise. When they're highly developed, they become the basis for all the kinds of miracle stories that we hear, the psychic powers. So this is the second kind of right understanding. That is the right view of jhana, of concentration. The third view, the third aspect of right understanding, is in some way the most important, and that's the right understanding of insight knowledge. In this right view, we begin to see more and more clearly the three characteristics of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, of selflessness. Sometimes in the teaching of the Dharma, the simplest expressions of the truth are the most profound. Somebody once came to Sariputta before he was fully enlightened. He had just become a stream enterer. This was right in the beginning of his career. And his friend, Moggallana, 
who was the, the second chief disciple of the Buddha, came and Sariputta was just trying to convey the very essence of the practice to him. And he made a very simple statement. He said, whatever has the nature to arise will also cease. Whatever has the nature to arise will also cease. It's a very simple expression. But as we understand it more deeply, it changes the way we relate to our experience. We begin to relate to experience from a place of much greater acceptance, much less judgment. When we internalize that understanding that everything which has the nature to arise is also going to pass away. It's not a question of resignation to experience. It's rather less reactivity. Investigate those times in your practice when you feel like you're in a struggle. When, you, when there's that sense of straining, of struggling, of efforting. Look to see what aspect of experience is not being accepted. Because struggle, the sense of struggle, always comes about when we're not open, when we're not accepting of something. It could be a feeling in the body, it could be a mind state, it could be a situation. It's the non-acceptance which is the struggle. Whatever arises will also pass away. Not maybe. <laughs> we can see this right understanding in relationship to pain. Now, how do we relate to pain in the body? If we have this right view, if we know, yes, this is a conditioned phenomenon, it arises out of conditions, it's here for a while, it will pass away. It becomes much easier for us to open to the pain rather than fight with it. To have that attitude of letting it in rather than trying to keep it out. And in that openness, in that letting in, we begin to see the pain not as one solid thing, but just as a, as a field of very intense sensations. But each one of those sensations is arising and passing very quickly. It's an energy field of intensity. If we're fighting to keep it out, it's very difficult to see this. If we're open and let it in, the nature, the impermanent nature, reveals itself. We want to develop and strengthen right understanding in relationship to our moods and emotions. It's so easy to get caught in the feeling that how we are feeling is going to last forever. That's how we often relate to the moods and emotions we have, even if intellectually we know it's going to change. But the way we're relating to it often is as this huge burden. Instead of seeing it, as passing weather. It's helpful to make a bigger time frame around it, to remind ourselves, yes, in 10 minutes, in half an hour, in a day, in six months, in a year, won't even remember that this has happened. <laughs> and it counteracts, it's an antidote to this feeling of strong identification of imprisonment in the mind state. This is the application of right understanding which actually strengthens the spiritual faculties. We understand the impermanence of it. So the next time you're sitting, and especially with what we call the afflictive emotions. You're sitting in this discouragement or despair or 
depression or anxiety or fear or whatever it might be. Bring to bear the wisdom of right understanding. Remembering that it is a conditioned passing state. This right understanding of insight knowledge is summed up and expressed very succinctly in the Buddha's very last teaching. Now imagine the scene for a moment. Is the all-enlightened, perfectly omniscient Buddha, you know, who was teaching for 45 years, the very end of his life, he's lying there surrounded by all the disciples, the nuns and the monks and the lay women and the laymen and devas and invisible beings and they're all kind of pushing and crowding to get a last view. <laughs> and the very last thing the Buddha says, you know, so obviously he feels it's of import. Right? He, All conditioned things are impermanent, are subject to decay. Accomplish your liberation with diligence or through diligence. All conditioned things are impermanent, are subject to decay. Accomplish your liberation through diligence. This statement has tremendous significance if we can take it in. All conditioned things are impermanent. What does this mean? It means everything in our experience. Everything that we experience, internally, externally, is impermanent, is subject to decay. When we really see this and open to it, it becomes clear that there is nothing to hold on to, nothing to grasp, nothing we can hold on to. Because in the very nature of phenomena, it's passing. Every situation, every situation in our lives, every experience of the moment arises out of conditions and the conditions are continuously changing. There's no firm ground in conditioned reality. Now I think most of you know that a couple of days ago my grandmother died and she would have been a hundred on Christmas Day and I saw I had gone to visit her just in September. She was 99 and three quarters. <laughs> and it was just, and her mind was, was lucid. She really had all her faculties of mind. But what was so striking, so amazing, was just how old her body was. It was like quintessential oldness. <laughs> you know, it was, I mean, it made somebody of 80 seem like a youngster. <laughs> and I just reflected, I mean, I obviously have memories of her from, from when she was much younger. You know, and just to see so strikingly, with such clarity, well, this is what happens. This is the nature of the body. This is what it becomes. You know, I'm sure it was as much of a mystery and a surprise to her you know, as it was to me looking from the outside. The great teaching here is that this is what happens to all of us. We may not all reach 99, but this is the process. But somehow, it's very hard to actually be living that understanding. 
Somehow we can see it in others and we know that it happens. But someplace deep within us, we don't believe that it's going to happen to us. So it takes reflecting, it takes seeing, it takes looking, it takes remembering. So this right understanding that everything which arises decays, everything which arises will cease, that there is nothing permanent, nothing stays the same. It implies a certain perspective for our practice. And it's a very important perspective to refine. And that is not observing or being aware of one thing, anticipating the next. Not leaning forward into experience. Stay very attuned to the in order to mind. I'm with this experience in order for something to happen. I'm with this step in order to take the next step. I'm with this breath in order to become calm or peaceful or whatever. We need to settle back and completely open to the momentariness of just this. Why lean forward? Why anticipate? Why expect? Why crave another impermanent experience? What's the point? But we have this thing, well, maybe the next one will be a little better. <laughs> you know, the next moment, the next sitting, the next day, the whatever. They're all equally impermanent, unsatisfying in that sense, all equally empty and selfless. I don't know whether I've mentioned to you in this retreat or not, the great Goldstein law of practice. If it's not one thing, it's another. This was a great revelation to me. <laughs> If it's not this, it's that. So why, why be grasping after anything? Because anything we grasp at is simply yet another passing momentary phenomenon. Through right understanding, we change the reference point of our practice. Instead of the reference point for what we're doing, being the getting of some experience, the reference point becomes the mind of non-attachment. That's what we're practicing. We're not practicing to get something or to have an experience because it will just be another momentary changing, ceasing phenomenon. What we're practicing is the mind of non-attachment to whatever arises. In a way that's very liberating to understand this because non-attachment is always available. You don't have to wait for non-attachment to arrive. With any arising experience, we can practice non-attachment. Just in one of the suttas of the Middle Lent sayings. And what's so wonderful about the teachings is the simplicity and directness and clarity so often. And this is, in one of the suttas, this is what the Buddha said. He said, all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. Becoming disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated.
All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. Whatever arises will pass away. And actually is passing away in the moment. Becoming disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate. These are very uh, appropriate words. Disenchanted. Because we have become enchanted. It's as if we are under a spell of enchantment with respect to experience. Through not seeing the impermanence, through not seeing the momentariness. And so through this right understanding, right view, we become disenchanted. Which is not the usual connotation of the word. It's the literal meaning of the word. Free from enchantment, free from the spell. Free from the spell of enchantment, we become dispassionate. What does dispassionate mean? It doesn't mean unenergized. It doesn't mean not caring. It means non-craving. When we're no longer in the enchantment of phenomena, we stop craving phenomena. And in the mind of no craving, the mind is liberated. It's really very simple, although also very difficult. Okay, so this is the first way of strengthening the spiritual faculties, of making them powers, by reflecting on, by deepening our consideration and experience of right understanding, of right view. Everything which has the nature to arise will pass away. A second way of strengthening the spiritual faculties is cultivating an attitude or a feeling of respect and care about the practice, about our own efforts, about the Dharma. My experience, um, especially in coming back, and of course this is many years ago, but coming back to this culture from some Asian cultures, it struck me that in many of our cultural forms, respect is not a highly valued uh, expression. You know, and even when we think of, in our culture, what are the things that generally people respect? Fame, power, beauty. The things that are not really of any lasting value, enduring value. Respect and the quality of care is a very beautiful quality of heart. We can, because it's a quality of honoring honoring something truly worthy of honor. So we want to cultivate this feeling of honor, of the Dharma, of our practice, of our own efforts in it. Now the Dharma is a jewel in our lives of priceless value because it is the source of every happiness coming into harmony with the truth, with how things are. Now, it transforms our consciousness. It weakens the forces of greed, of hatred, of ignorance. This is, this is not the material of a weekend workshop. <laughs> you know? So, it's helpful, I think, to really remember that because so much of our you know, cultural conditioning is you know, the quick hit and the immediate fix. And, and the Dharma is not like that. 
This is the words of the Buddha with respect to the practice that we're doing. This is the direct way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for reaching the noble path, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. That's a very direct and powerful statement about the power and worthiness of what we're doing here. The direct way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for reaching the noble path, for the realization of freedom, of Nibbana. So what we're doing is worthy of taking great care. The Buddha talked of the practice as gradually deepening. And he gave various images. He likened it in one example to the ocean floor sloping away. You know, as it goes from the shore, it gets gradually deeper. One, one example he gave was for the uprooting of the various kalesas, the afflictive emotions, those, those aspects of the mind which cause suffering, he likened it to a rope which is tying a boat to a dock and the rope is uh, laying in the water and just from being in the water over time the rope starts to disintegrate you know, until it finally breaks. And in the same way through the power of mindfulness, through the power of awareness, of seeing the greed and the desire and the anger and the aversion and the restlessness and all of these galaxies, by seeing them over and over again in the light of wisdom, in the light of awareness, they weaken until finally they break. Reflecting on the purpose of what we're doing here, remembering it, which sometimes is difficult to do in the, in the midst of the ups and the downs and the struggles, we can forget exactly why am I sitting and walking. You know, it's, it's helpful to just take a few moments to reflect you know, on the deep and very profound purpose of the practice. It develops a great respect for ourselves, for our own efforts, and also respect for the efforts of others. And this respect leads to that quality of taking care, of really taking care with our practice, caring for the moment, caring for each experience, not rushing through things. A very helpful way of strengthening this caring attitude is slowing down. Not slowing down in the sense of straining or struggling to go slow, but slowing down in the way you might do Tai Chi or some classical dance, where you settle into the experience out of interest, out of care, out of attentiveness. Use the time here. This is a priceless gift you've given to yourselves. You know, the space and time to practice in this way. Caring brings a certain quality of meticulousness so that each thing we do is done carefully. Notice how you go from one position, one posture to another. Now, so often we sit, hear the bell ring, sort of up and out. And then maybe halfway through the upper walking room of the cold room, oh yeah, mindful. So one way of refining our stability or of caring is to pay particular attention to times of changes of posture. Because that's often where we lose it, where we forget. Do it carefully. 
how many different moves, movements do you have to make to go from sitting to standing? Really pay attention, watch it unfold, be in your body as you're doing it. It's that kind of care. You hear something, you turn your head to see. Can you be aware of that whole process of hearing, of intending to turn, of turning? And again, it's not from forcing, it's not from efforting. Simply from giving yourself the space to take care. Another wonderful field for caring attention is to notice the effortless, spontaneous precision with which every experience is known when the mind is undistracted. So for example, there's a feeling of a breath that comes. When the mind is undistracted, when it's not lost, the breath appears, and every sensation of that breath can be known effortlessly, spontaneously, exactly, precisely, because the nature of the mind is awareness itself. It's not something we have to create. Rather, it's something to be undistracted from. So explore that. This is not a question of some theoretical belief or it's a nice idea. Really see that for yourself because it's tremendously liberating to see that the nature of the mind is awareness. As you're walking, as you're taking a step, and the mind is undistracted. Every sensation of that movement appears and is known miraculously. It's known precisely. It's known effortlessly. So really begin to explore this. This is the quality of taking care, of really seeing how things are happening, the very nature of awareness itself. The problem is, and our practice derives from the fact that we get distracted very often. We get pulled into thoughts and reactions and judgments and likes and dislikes. And so we obscure this natural quality of awareness. There's a line from a poem by Wordsworth, which he, I don't know whether he was talking about this in particular, but it applies to this, where he says, late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. And it's just that image when I, when I read those lines. Late and soon, it's as if we're either anticipating or we're looking back, getting and spending, reacting, wanting, not wanting, liking, disliking. We lay waste our powers. So our practice, again and again, is not judging the fact that we get distracted, simply recognizing when it happens, and then coming back with care to seeing how everything is known spontaneously when we're present. So to really look at that. This respect for our practice, for the Dharma, leads both to the care we take with our own practice and it can also lead to taking great care in our relationship with others. At this stage in the retreat, you know, one note to somebody can reverberate for days. Should I answer? Shouldn't I answer? Why'd they send it? <laughs> I mean, the proliferation of thoughts is amazing. So take care with that. Have a care and respect for other people's practice too. How are you opening and closing doors? You know, a door can be closed silently. 
but it takes care, it takes attentiveness. You know, it's at this depth of practice, sort of the occupational hazard is something which we've referred to before, you know, and it's the phenomenon of yogi mind, where little things take on huge proportions. Be aware of that. If you feel like you're overreactive, if you're caught up in a murderous rage because somebody's walking too slowly for your tastes, you might just take a breath or two. (laughs) Real yogi mind. In a way, it's a sign of good practice because It's because the mind gets so concentrated that things get magnified and all of our reactions get magnified. But we want to understand this, you know, so that we keep some balance. There's one... Sutta in which the monk Anuruddha, who was one of the great, great enlightened monks, one of the great disciples, and he was said to be foremost in uh, the divine eye. He had that. He had that power. But the stories in the suttas of him, of him are that he was practicing in these forest groves with some other monks. And this particular discourse was all about living harmoniously with groups of people. And he said something in a way very obvious and very simple, but I think it's worth reminding ourselves. This is, this is Anuruddha speaking. Why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what those others wish to do? And that was his That was his guideline for living in community, with the suggestion that everybody have that feeling. So just imagine if groups of people come together and put aside their own sort of self-importance and basically relate from a place of service. And everybody is doing that with each other. It's a tremendously, a tremendously cooperative venture then. Now it, it reiterates that teaching which I mentioned from the Zen master Bankai, don't side with yourself. So this can be very helpful, you know, in a, in a group of a hundred people practicing in close quarters. We want to take care with our practice and take care with each other. This is the second way of strengthening the spiritual faculties. It's deepening our right understanding, developing care and respect for how we practice. The third way of strengthening the spiritual faculties is developing perseverance and continuity. Perseverance. You know, you've all been through innumerable ups and downs, and sittings where things are going well, and sittings where they're going with difficulty. The perseverance, that quality, is that we are just determined, going to sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk. Through it all, through all the weather changes. There's this one story of a Chinese Zen master of, of recent years. He lived to 120 years old. His, his name was Su Yun. And it said that he practiced for the first 80 years of his life. You know, and he did awareness practice, and he did mantra practice, and he did devotional practice, and spent the first 80 years. 
ripening. <laughs> and then from 80 to 120, he began teaching. Suzuki Roshi calls this quality constancy. You know, and that's, that's the quality that we need to cultivate and strengthen. Spiritual practice, Dharma practice, is not a question even of a three-month retreat, as long as it may seem at the moment. This is just one more little piece of a vast journey. So if we have that sense, we can just settle back completely and fully with perseverance and constancy just into this leg of the journey. It's actually, when we have this feeling of constancy, of perseverance, it actually allows us to settle back, to relax. To relax into where we are. Perseverance and continuity. Continuity means that we practice stabilizing our awareness moment to moment, noticing that it's the force of unacknowledged glaces or defilements which actually weaken the mind. And so we want to practice noticing moment to moment what it is that's arising. I had one experience with Upandita which was so simple, but it changed my practice. This, uh, I was in Nepal, we were doing a course there with him. And, I don't know, for some reason my mind was on this great uh, judging and comparing jag. You know, just lots of comparing and judging thoughts. So I went in and I reported this to him in the interview. And he just looked at me and he said, be more mindful. So my first thought was, thanks a lot. <laughs> I mean, I expected some, you know, magical way of getting rid of all these judgments and be more mindful. But then I, I went outside and I started walking. I thought, well, why don't I try it? <laughs> so I actually became more mindful. And lo and behold, as I became more mindful, as the judging thought appeared in the mind, I was right there for it. I noticed it instead of being lost in it. It is actually that simple. But it's remembering to do it. Something that's very helpful is to be continuous enough, meticulous enough, so that you see the trigger points of thought or image that sets off the train of proliferating thought, especially the very repetitive ones. You know, whatever your favorite tapes are, there is one thought or one image that triggers the whole sequence. Pay careful enough attention to catch that trigger point as it arises. And it's amazing. Through that attentiveness and care, we often can save ourselves going down that long dead end. It's not that we'll be able to do it every time, but we'll be able to do it sometimes. And it reveals a lot about the potential for actually being free, and it strengthens the quality of our awareness. Okay, so how do we strengthen the continuity? How do we do this? Just very simple. You know, we notice the changes of posture, as I mentioned. Notice when you're rushing. You can often notice it when you're moving about, but you can also be rushing in sitting. Did you ever have that feeling of 
as if you have to get someplace in the sitting, as if you have to accomplish something. Whenever you notice the feeling of rushing, settle back. It means there's anticipation, we're not back in the moment. Be aware of that momentary pause before movements, that about to moment. These are all ways of strengthening the continuity. Notice the time of day or the particular activities where you habitually lose it, where you habitually become distracted. Pay attention to that. Maybe it's in your room, maybe it's in eating, maybe it's getting food, maybe it's in yogi job. When you see, oh yeah, my mind often gets distracted at this time of day or in this activity, so at that time arouse a little more effort, attentiveness, care. And perhaps the most helpful suggestion for developing continuity, and as an example, in the sitting or the walking, be with just one breath or one step. And often even one breath is too long. Be with half a breath, an in-breath or an out-breath. That's the domain of right effort. Because if you sit down and think, I'm going to be really continuous for the next half hour, it's hopeless. You know, and so the mind goes off and then it gets discouraged. Let me be continuous for half a breath or the lifting movement in a step. Well, I can do that. And then the next breath, next half breath, next part of the step. So in very small increments, we take care. And those small increments then become a continuous flow of awareness. I'd like to read something which I read a few mornings ago, but again, just as a reminder for what we're doing. When walking, know that you are walking. When standing, know you are standing. When sitting, know you are sitting. When lying down, know you are lying down. In whatever way your body is disposed, know that that's how it is. When you're going forward or back, clearly be aware of what you are doing. In looking forward or back, you are clearly aware of what you are doing. In bending and stretching, clearly aware of what you are doing. In wearing your clothes, clearly aware of what you are doing. In eating, drinking, chewing, savoring, be clearly aware of what you are doing. In passing excrement or urine, clearly aware of what you are doing. In walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep and waking up. In speaking or in staying silent, be clearly aware of what you are doing. Abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is from the Satipatthana Sutta. This is the practice. Do you see the simplicity of it? Our task is simply to notice each arising experience as it comes. When we get lost, when we get distracted, we simply come back and begin again. But we want to do it with care, we want to do it with respect, we want to do it with meticulous attention. The last way that I want to mention of strengthening the faculties is right understanding, there's respect and care for the practice, this perseverance and continuity. The last way is through the arousing of courageous effort. Now the word courage, it comes from the Latin word for heart. 
And one of the ways I understand it is really the quality of great-heartedness. That's what courage is. And that's the quality we need to bring to our practice because what we're undertaking is the most difficult task that can be done. And to purify the mind, which has been conditioned, certainly within this lifetime, and as the Buddha taught for endless lifetimes, it's conditioned by ignorance and craving and aversion and delusion. And what we're doing is nothing less than purifying this heart and mind of all of these forces, of coming to a place of freedom. This is a tremendous task, a tremendous undertaking. It needs that quality of courageous effort, of great-heartedness, the kind of the kind of courage that doesn't retreat from difficulties. You need to cultivate a certain quality of spiritual urgency, of spiritual ardency, particularly when we have the strength and the health to practice. Because as I mentioned earlier, this these conditions don't last. And I was very clear, as in these last, these last years when I was with my grandmother, it was so obvious she was just getting weaker and weaker. At that point, there was no, there was no possibility for her, you know, of really bringing energized energy to a practice, even if she had been so inclined, which she wasn't. <laughs> But it was just, it was very interesting just to see, yeah, at a certain point, the energy's not there anymore. And so given these conditions and, and reflecting on it arouses this sense of spiritual ardency. This particular quality of, of urgency, it doesn't mean panic. It means... <laughs> It means connecting with what is true. <laughs> so how do, we, how do we arouse the spiritual urgency? One is reflecting on the transiency of phenomena. Just look at all the things in our lives that we identify with, that we crave, that we want, that we desire, that we spend our whole lives revolving about. For what? I'm not going to read this whole book, but there's a wonderful book. It's called The Life of Shabkar. He was a great Tibetan yogi, uh, wonderful teachings, uh, one of his most well-known uh, book of teachings is called The Flight of the Garuda. Uh, and this is, his, this is his life story and it's very inspiring. So I just want to read, in, and in the Tibetan tradition, I guess, uh, in those great open mountain spaces, uh, it seems like the yogis all like to sing the Dharma. You know, so there are, this book is just filled with Dharma songs, uh, which I won't sing, <laughs> but I'll read. Another day I went out for some fresh air to a meadow covered with flowers. While singing and remaining in a state of awareness, I noticed among the profusion of flowers spread out before me one particular flower waving gently on its long stem and giving out a sweet fragrance. As it swayed from side to side, I heard this song in the rustling of its petals. The song of the flower. An offering. My father and mother are the sky and the earth. I am the child nurtured by warmth and moisture. 
See how beautifully I display my fine petals, waving them in the ten directions. They are my offering to the three jewels. Listen to me, mountain dweller. You, so-called hermit, collecting all sorts of scribbling, stagger under the weight of your load of worn-out books. If these books and instructions are not present within your own mind, why should you carry such a burden of writings? I don't want to hurt your feelings, but in fact you even lack awareness of impermanence and death, let alone any realization of emptiness. For those with such awareness, out of phenomena all teach impermanence and death. I, the flower, will now give you, the yogi, a bit of helpful advice on death and on impermanence. A flower born in a meadow, I enjoy perfect happiness with my brightly colored petals in full bloom. Surrounded by an eager cloud of bees, I dance gaily, swaying gently with the wind. When a fine rain falls, my petals wrap around me, and when the sun shines, I open like a smile. Right now I look well enough, but I won't last long, not at all. Unwelcome frost will dull these vivid colors, till turning brown I wither. Later still, winds, violent, merciless, will tear me apart until I turn to dust. You, hermit, are of the same nature. Surrounded by a host of disciples, you enjoy a fine complexion. Your body of flesh and blood is full of life. When others praise you, you dance with joy. When faithful patrons turn up, you sit in a dignified manner. <laughs> when they shower you with lavish food, you smile with satisfaction. Right now, you look well enough, but you won't last long, not at all. Unwelcome aging will steal away your healthy vigor. Your hair will whiten, your back will grow bent. Just thinking about it, don't you feel chastened? When touched by the merciless hands of illness and death, you will leave this world for the next life, vanquished and powerless. Since you, mountain-roaming hermit, and I, a mountain-born flower, are mountain friends, I have offered you these words of good advice. Then the flower fell silent and remained still. In reply, I sang, O brilliant, exquisite flower, your discourse on impermanence is wonderful indeed. But what shall the two of us do? Is there nothing that can be done? The flower replied, I make this offering an offering to the infallible three jewels. We too must now do as I say. Among all the activities of samsara, there is not one that is lasting. Whatever is born will die. Whatever is joined will come apart. Whatever is gathered will disperse. Whatever is high will fall. Having considered this, I resolve not to be attached to these lush meadows. Even now, in the full glory of my display, even now as my petals unfold in splendor. You too, while strong and fit, should abandon your clinging to the pleasing taste of respect and the offerings of others. Meditate in solitude. Seek the pure field of freedom, the great serenity. That's the teaching of the mountain flower. We don't realize deeply the truth of the transiency of everything, then we devote our lives, we devote our energy to collecting things, to situations, to experiences. Notice how you do it in the practice. Is the reference point for your practice to get something? Or is the reference point of your practice, moment after moment, 
the mind of no attachment, the mind of letting go. The sense of spiritual urgency, of realizing what is truly of importance in our lives, is the wellspring of it's really where the courage comes from in our practice and in our lives. It helps us move through all of the difficulties, through all of the ups and downs. So there's deepening the right understanding, developing care and respect for our practice, for our efforts, for other people in their practice, strengthening quality of perseverance, of continuity and meticulousness in practice, and arousing that sense of spiritual urgency and courageous effort. The Buddha turned this wheel of the Dharma 2,500 years ago. It's rolled across continents, it's rolled across oceans. As we do the practice, as we transform these spiritual faculties into spiritual powers, we're also turning this wheel of the Dharma. And we turn it for our own transformation, and we turn it for the benefit of all beings. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.